Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Cecile Fromont, who is an Associate Professor of African and South Atlantic Art in the History of Art Department at Yale. Her writing and teaching focus on the visual, material, and religious culture of Africa and Latin America, with a special emphasis on the early modern period and on the Portuguese-speaking Atlantic world. Her first book, The Art of Conversion, Christian Visual Culture in the Kingdom of Congo, won a number of awards, and her essays on African and Latin American art have appeared in a number of publications, including Colonial Latin American Review and African Arts. Today we'll talk with Professor Fremont about the circulation of African visual, material, and religious culture in the context of the slave trade within the early modern Atlantic world. Welcome, Professor Fremont. Thank you for having me. Let's start with an overview of your work. Tell us about it. Yes, thank you. Well, I'm actually at a very exciting point in the arc of uh, research because I'm finishing two big projects and just starting on a new exciting one. Mm -hmm. um, the projects that I'm finishing, um, the one deals with images that missionaries um, that went to Congo and Angola in the 17th and 18th century created mm -hmm. as literally practical guides to the mission for future missionaries. And they're interesting because they're European images made by Europeans for Europeans, um, but I'm arguing that in fact they are co-productions between um, the local African populations mm -hmm. and the missionaries. And so they should be read as uh, both African images and uh, European images. Very interesting. The second uh, project is uh, looking at uh, pouches and packets that were uh, masterminded by people of African birth or descent in the early modern Atlantic worlds uh, that uh, gave their wearers um, protection mm -hmm. against vulnerability. And so they are uh, understood as amulets uh, or as uh, different types of empowered packets. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are ways in which um, uh, the um, makers were able to bring scraps of uh, European uh, esoteric and religious uh, uh, material and transform them into objects of action and protection mm -hmm. for Africans, but also Europeans. Wow. And as I'm thinking about these two projects, I um, uh, uh, encountered these new questions about um, what I think of as the material histories of the slave trade. Thinking about those objects and uh, those images and the ways in which they participated in creating the early modern world in the context of the rise uh, and um, the uh, uh, apogee, really, of uh, the slave trade era. So that new project is looking at the 18th century and um, looking at the exchange of um, objects between European merchants and uh, African rulers on the Atlantic coast. But these objects are actually exquisite pieces that are made in Europe for particular rulers or particular um, uh, uh, merchants on the Atlantic coast um, uh, as a way to create diplomatic and commercial relationships mm -hmm. between 
um, uh, uh, the Europeans and the African merchants. Mm -hmm. And what's um, striking about these objects is they go against that perception that the slave trade was an unequal exchange between um, European merchants that were bringing trifles, things of little price and uh, um, uh, little uh, sophistication to the Atlantic coast, and in exchange would obtain uh, objects and uh, merchandise of great value, mm -hmm. uh, and in particular, enslaved men and women. But looking at these objects that are so fine, they're bespoke, they're uh, made to the specifications of the African rulers, mm -hmm. we start to see a very different type of exchange that is based on a very fine-grained uh, engagement at the level of aesthetic and design um, between the two parties. Okay, well, that sounds like really fascinating work for you. How did you become interested in it? Yes, thank you. Well, you know, as an art historian, I spend a lot of time looking at um, written uh, documents in archives, but I also spend a lot of time in museums looking at objects and um, really gaining a better understanding of the material and visual culture of mm -hmm. the Atlantic world. And I was in a museum in the west of France that is focusing on uh, France's connection with the Atlantic world. And I saw that object that was really a lightning bolt uh, mm -hmm. uh, for me. And it was um, uh, a silver knife or sword mm -hmm. um, about this big that on the one hand um, had fine decorations and um, silversmithing that is really typical of late 18th century uh, French metalworking, mm -hmm. uh, rococo flowers and embellishments. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, at the really typical shape of uh, a chimpada, which is a type of ceremonial knife that was used in uh, West Central Africa uh, around the mouth of the Congo River. So by the shape for me, it was clear that it was that type of object that um, I knew on the African context could be made uh, of metal, sometimes they're made of wood, mm -hmm. but in this case, it was silver, and on it was written a dedication to a particular person, Andres Pukuta, who is an historical figure who lived uh, in the second half of the 18th century on uh, the coast of the Congo. And this object there that was so fine was made for that person. Mm -hmm. And it was such um, uh, so dedicated to him precisely that it literally had the name of right. uh, that African ruler uh, on it. And I remembered having read about that knife uh, before uh, through um, a short piece that the conservator of the museum had made, but seeing it in person was just mm -hmm. uh, a revelation in understanding um, the paradoxes that went into its making, mm -hmm. that on the one hand, um, it was an object that was made to impress. It was silver, it's shiny, it's decorated. But on the other hand, you could see that there was attempts at saving um, some of the expense of making it. The, sh the blade was so thin that it, it could hardly stand um, on a stand. Uh -huh. um, but it was, you know, that, that piece uh, that was really baffling. And so I started wondering, so what are the types of relationship um, that are involved in the making of that object? Mm -hmm. um, and what is that object in terms of uh, innovation and um, in terms of the kinds of reckonings that the artists 
um, the metal workers in France had to go through to create that piece mm -hmm. that after all was a French-made piece that was made after a African template of knife that was sent to an African ruler to impress him with the riches of France. So there was an entanglement of um, uh, aesthetic decisions, design practices, um, and it really kind of challenged our understanding of that exchange of um, uh, what merchants of, uh, from Europe brought to the Atlantic coast. In this case, they had thought long and hard into what kind of objects they had to bring. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that really started me thinking about that exchange and really the possibilities that finding objects like this mm -hmm. and studying them um, could uh, uh, open up in terms of understanding the early modern world better. Okay, so let's talk about um, your methodology and how you did the research. Um, so it must have been interesting for you to try and track how the knife came to be. So do you know who commissioned the knife for the African ruler? Tell us a bit about what you learned. Yes. Well, I'm at the beginning of that research in a way. So there is a lot that we know um, because we have the name of uh, uh, the African ruler mm -hmm. um, who was a person in charge in that particular region of dealing with European merchants. So European merchants needed his uh, agreement to be able to trade in that region. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a tremendous competitions between different uh, uh, places. Uh, so the uh, French merchants were in competition against the Portuguese uh -huh. merchants, in competition okay. against the, uh, the Dutch merchants. Uh, and Andres was the one who was deciding who could trade at what price okay. and uh, in what quantities. Mm -hmm. So they really needed um, to, uh, the, to, to have his agreement. Okay. Um, Let me ask you trading. So they, they were slaving trades. Um, they were trading slaves as well as other goods, yes? Yes, they were trading slaves as well as uh, other goods, but principally the core of the exchange at that, um, uh, in that region and at that moment of the late 18th century was really uh, the Slaves. trading enslaved okay. men and women. That was that the main part mm -hmm. uh, of the story um, okay. there. Yes. All right, so continue um, where I interrupted you. <laughs> yes. Uh, so they, they needed to, to impress uh, Andres with okay. uh, this kind of gift. Um, and so I went back, and I'm starting to go back more uh, systematically um, to the uh, records that the slave traders were keeping about their activities. Mm -hmm. And these records were painstaking because the stakes economically were so high and it involved all the mechanisms of what we think as um, a modern uh, uh, international trade. Mm -hmm. It involved insurance, it involved uh, record keeping, double ledger accounting, and so we have this wealth of information that has been worked on um, uh, really to great results by mm -hmm. economic historians, um, but in a way that was more geared at understanding uh, the macroeconomic um, um, uh, picture of uh, the development of Europe and Africa at one level, and then at a microeconomic level, thinking about uh, the balance of the trade, mm -hmm. who profited and to what extent. Right. But going back to this uh, document as an art historian, I'm interested in the 
particularities of the objects that they are trading. Mm -hmm. When they are uh, describing the type of cloth they are bringing to the African uh, to the African coast, they are describing exactly what type of cloth, what designs mm -hmm. for what region um, is needed. And then they're describing some of those um, uh, exceptional objects, such as the chimpada knife uh, that I was discussing. Mm -hmm. And so going back to these records, you can flesh out uh, a much more fine-grained um, history of the material exchange that went on mm -hmm. on the Atlantic coast. Okay, so let's talk about how the exchange influenced, um, you know, the art and aesthetic of both places. What have you found? Yeah, so on the one hand, uh, it is really um, uh, intriguing to think about uh, uh, the ways in which um, artisans and artists in Europe um, were making objects for an African public. And we tend to uh, think of uh, the exchange in the other direction, mm -hmm. um, that Europeans are collectors and connoisseurs and interested in exotic uh, objects. But uh, by these records, uh, we know that this was true uh, in the other direction, that African rulers were collectors and connoisseurs and uh, really excited about exotic objects. Mm -hmm. And so it's fleshing out um, that um, um, that process. And it's a process that really goes back to the first moment uh, of um, the making of the uh, Atlantic uh, trade in slaves. We have very exciting documents from the early 16th century um, that describe the first uh, encounters, um, the first decades of encounters, I mm -hmm. should say, between Portugal and the Kingdom of Congo, for example, in which uh, the King of Portugal is sending um, uh, panel paintings, uh, uh, metal works, the finest kinds of objects that he would be sending to other rulers all around the world to impress mm -hmm. his interlocutor in the Congo. And um, the King of Congo is receiving them with great interest and is asking for more because he's interested about this newfangled artworks mm -hmm. and uh, objects. And on the other hand, the King of Congo is sending the incredibly fine textile that uh, his artisans are making. And these objects are also received with great enthusiasm at the court of Portugal. Mm -hmm. So it's really um, an exchange that goes both ways. And this is happening in the first decade of the 16th century. Um, in a way that we can uh, approximate to diplomatic exchange elsewhere in the world, but just one step after discussing this exchange in the Portuguese document, you have the more sinister side that is uh, embedded in which um, the king of Portugal is giving direction to his uh, diplomats of, oh, give this great gift to my uh, brother, the king of Congo. Mm -hmm. And then remember to tell him that I sent this gift at great cost. And so he should make sure that those ships are full of merchandise in return. Mm -hmm. And those, this merchandise is slaves, slaves, slaves. It repeats in the instructions, wow. get slaves. And so that's the history that we are following, that mm -hmm. I'm following over centuries. And it uh, 
changes to some extent um, in the quantity, in um, the number uh, of uh, enslaved men and women that are being uh, traded, um, but the nature of the objects um, that are going back and forth uh, um, uh, as a consequence remain uh, a full range up to the very most fine objects that are being uh, mm -hmm. made in Europe. And so I'm interested in, in following that. Right. I mean, it is fascinating to hear you speak of this because I think many people, it's virtually unknown that the African leaders were complicit in sending their, you know, brothers and sisters off to different lands to be slaves. Um, I don't, I'm not necessarily sure that um, people are really aware of that, so I think that's very interesting and, and that it was a one-way trade um, in reality because, you know, while both coasts were trading these, um, you know, bespoke artistic objects, the slaves were only really going in one way. So um, I find that fascinating. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure how, in a way, how uh, important it is to think of it in terms of uh, being complicit. Mm -hmm. uh, um, what we really need to get our head around is that it was a trade that was complex and sophisticated mm -hmm. and that involved two set of people right. whose goals, uh, whose uh, motivations were equally complex mm -hmm. and equally sophisticated. And I think it's much more important to flesh out the story in this way, okay. or it's equally important to flesh mm -hmm. out the story in this way, right. um, to understand that um, the two parties involved uh, were of were equally human in a way in in their in their motivations in their goals and in the means that they were um, uh, using to achieve prosperity which was the goal uh, uh, in both uh, right. sides and it took different forms mm -hmm. um, and really what I want to achieve with that um, project is um, to have a better understanding of the ways in which Africa and Africans participated mm -hmm. as full actors in the crafting of the Atlantic world and in um, some of the most important uh, aspect of the creation of the uh, modern world of modernity um, that we understand um, so far as a European story uh, or a story that in which non-Europeans um, are uh, serving as foils um, to the construction of the European modern subject, mm -hmm. right? That is not um, a savage, for example. Right. Uh, that is rational versus irrational. Mm -hmm. uh, and looking at the terms of exchange and looking at the sophistication of African interlocutors, um, we can understand better the formation of that modernity um, in that the Africans participated in it. Mm -hmm. They were not irrational. They didn't want, uh, they didn't not understand the value of mm -hmm. objects. They uh, actually uh, were parts of determining what value was sure. and uh, what sophistication uh, was and what shape it took. Mm -hmm. And fleshing out that story really helps us understand our world much better. Yes, I mean, it, and it is a, it is a fascinating, um, I think, way to think about it, actually. So I'm curious to know, were there any surprises that you did not anticipate as you're doing your research? Did you come across anything that you said, wow, 
Yes, yeah, so there was that, that, that object, um, but also when you look at the record, and I knew um, uh, the slave trading record existed, but I hadn't spent uh, extensive time uh, with them. And as I'm starting to delve into them, it's just mind-boggling uh, how precise uh, uh, they are and how much there was uh, an engagement on the part uh, of the slave traders with fine details of um, aesthetic uh, values on uh, the part of their interlocutors. Mm -hmm. So we can actually go back to the 16th century to some extent, but much more the 17th mm -hmm. and the 18th century, um, and have really fine-grained descriptions of the preferences of uh, African rulers, elite in particular, mm -hmm. um, on different points of the uh, uh, African continent, on wow. the Atlantic side. Can you tell us about some of them? Um, I, I have uh, general examples, mm -hmm. but um, uh, one of them would be um, the uh, uh, really uh, exciting uh, reception that uh, blue checkered cloth uh, uh, received in Central Africa, which is a very kind of modest uh, type of, uh, uh, of cloth that is literally a, a, a cotton um, with blue check uh, mm -hmm. on it. And it was received um, in uh, Central Africa, in Congo and Angola, um, as this um, object um, that then was uh, integrated into the regalia of the rulers mm -hmm. so that you uh, see uh, images uh, that were made of uh, African rulers uh, at the time in West Central Africa and they are wearing their very prestigious um, uh, cap of status, mm -hmm. um, chains of gold, really uh, um, uh, fancy things and this blue check cloth mm -hmm. that really becomes part of their regalia and becomes a way of um, uh, heralding their power and their legitimacy. And probably my hypothesis is that part of it has to do with showcasing um, their, the reach of their power, right? Or their ability to reach, harness, and mobilize long distance trade network mm -hmm. um, and make it part of the reasons why they are legitimate rulers. And then this cloth continues to be used for centuries uh, and, and ends up being used in uh, those power objects that uh, we imagine sometimes as uh, typical of uh, the African continent. So figures in human forms mm -hmm. that are um, empowered, uh, activated with nails and other shards of metal. Um, and these shards of metal sometimes are um, tied with this blue and white check. Mm -hmm. uh, so in there, that textile continues to talk about power and sophistication mm -hmm. for centuries. And what's interesting is that these objects are really um, the emblem of uh, uh, wrong uh, ideas about uh, the heart of darkness, right? Africa's untouched and uh, having this, you know, ancestral historical practices. Mm -hmm. But these objects are actually eminently historical in that they were created at the moment of the height of the slave trade and through objects that are being traded and that arrive on the continent uh, with uh, the long distance trade, mm -hmm. enslaved in particular, and through which the rulers express power. And so the idiom of power is linked to Atlantic network and is linked to imported objects. Okay. I'm curious to know if you were able to um, find any of the objects um, 
in Africa versus, you know, the museums of Europe. So do they still have some of the pieces there? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I'm at the stage of the research um, that uh, I'm going to spend a lot of time looking at uh, the European records mm -hmm. first um, in terms of the slave trading records and then going to museums that have some of these objects uh, in Europe. Um, but also, uh, I want to go into um, the uh, factories. Uh, some of them are still in activities in terms of textile making in Europe um, to look at their record and see, mm -hmm. you know, how, what they have in terms of uh, that particular uh, moment in their activity. Um, and then once I have a better understanding of what and how and what it looked like, um, the second part of my research will be to go back to uh, some uh, places on the African Atlantic coast and conduct oral histories mm -hmm. uh, when I know exactly what to ask and about what type of objects and, mm -hmm. and features mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, would be interesting to, to know more. Sure. Uh, and um, I have uh, been in some of the uh, museum and repositories. Some of them are linked to uh, still uh, local rulers um, in uh, around the mouth of the Congo, for example. And some of these uh, trade objects are very much there, um, still displayed as part of the um, regalia of the rulers mm -hmm. or part of the kind of elite objects of right. a past that is uh, not so distant. Uh, and so it would be really interesting to look at that. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the objects also end up uh, being part of funerary materials um, that are decorating or I should say more enhancing mm -hmm. the tombs of uh, rulers. Right. Uh, sometimes the actual objects, um, but in other times uh, these objects uh, recast in stone or uh, more recently in cement that they are remade in a more durable form in a right, way right. to mm -hmm. uh, be on top of this tomb. So uh, I'm really also looking forward to conducting that part of the research. Okay, well we will look forward to seeing more from you on this topic. Very interesting. Thank you for being here Thank today. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a great conversation. Thank you. For more information about Professor Fromont and her research, please visit our website at macmillanreport.yale.edu. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.